If you have the option to interact with the people who are growing your food, again, I realize that's not available everywhere. So I believe the work is to transition our commercial food supply to low pesticide methods. And this is being done in many areas. Farmers are saying no to the high cost of inputs. Farmer debt is at record highs now. And part of that is due to input costs. If a farmer buys the uncoated, say, soybean seed, for example, and doesn't use the Roundup to clear the field, if they have other ways of using insecticides on a very limited basis, they scout, they see a problem, it's not being taken care of by the predator insects, then they bring in the insecticides. That's called integrated pest management. And there are recent studies that have been published about people who grow corn and watermelon rotations or different melons. And they wanted to know, can we preserve our bees and can we preserve crop yields? And they found that absolutely they can. In some cases, they got much better yields while preserving their bees while using a selective pesticide application approach. Hello, and welcome back to the Outdoor Minimalist Podcast. I'm your host, Meg Carney, and I'm an outdoor and environmental writer and author of the book, Outdoor Minimalist, Wasteless Hiking, Camping, and Backpacking. The Outdoor Minimalist Podcast has the goal to give listeners actionable ways to waste less hiking, camping, backpacking, and more during every step of their process. Your impact outdoors starts long before you hit the trail and goes beyond leave no trace ethics. You'll learn how to identify sustainable outdoor brands, how to ask hard questions regarding sustainability, and begin to shift and evolve your mindset to integrate minimalism into all of your outdoor pursuits. In episode 113 of the Outdoor Minimalist podcast, I interview author Elizabeth Hilborn about her new book, Restoring Eden. The book is at once a riveting environmental detective story, an inspiring account of citizen advocacy, and a gorgeous ode to the fragile ecosystems that nourish us both physically and spiritually. Dr. Elizabeth Hilborn is a veterinarian who specializes in honey bee medicine. She uses her veterinary training and broad scientific expertise to shine light on interconnectedness of all life. She fully recognizes the power of the pollinator-plant partnership that supports, sustains, and nurtures life on Earth. An avid gardener and fruit grower, for decades she's fed her family and friends with fresh produce from her family's farm in central North Carolina. For over 25 years, she served as an environmental health scientist with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, where she studies and writes in a scientific journal about the health effects of water pollution. Thanks for joining me on the Outdoor Minimalist podcast, Elizabeth. I am excited to cover this topic. It isn't necessarily like the normal topic that we would cover on the show because it's not explicitly related to outdoor recreation, but it is related to the outdoor spaces that we enjoy. So I felt like it was relevant to cover on the show. 
And to start with the question that I asked to all of my guests, I would love to learn a little bit more about you and your background and your love for nature. So how did you first become interested in the outdoors and how does it fit into your life now? Sure. Thanks for having me here, first of all. When I was a little kid, I was a free range kid. This isn't available to children regularly anymore, but we had a natural area behind our house. So when I was six years old, I could open the door and just go out for hours into a wetland, a forest, and I took full advantage of that. So I spent a lot of time, I was always drawn to animals really early on. So I would watch birds, I would watch the frogs, I'd learn to catch frogs, I'd watch the dragonflies. So it started early, just feeling comfort, being alone in nature. As I grew, of course, social things took me away, but I returned to finding just great pleasure in nature as a young adult. I was in outdoor clubs at school. I did a lot of whitewater canoeing and kayaking, hiking. I lived in New England at the time, so hiking the White Mountains, canoe camping in the Allagash Wilderness, in the Everglades Wilderness, doing canoe trails there. And it was just always a place of joy and comfort to have the quiet, to see the stars, to feel in communion with the natural world. And now that I'm an adult with a full-time job and so many responsibilities, I chose a lifestyle that puts me outside all the time. We have a homestead, I'd call it. It's a farm, but it's not a commercial farm. So I'm outside at least three hours a day doing work with the animals, with the plants, hiking around to check on different aspects of the land, because we had some invasive plants here when we first moved here. So I'd been trying to control those and you know, make sure new ones aren't invading us. And so, yeah, it's my life to be out in the natural world. I don't do as much camping anymore, but yeah, it's still part of my life. And is that kind of like passion for being outdoors and like around animals and stuff? Did that influence like your career path? Yes, I became a veterinarian and I had to work hard to do that because when I first started, there weren't many vet schools available. So it started opening up in the early 80s that more vet schools became available. It was a little bit more realistic to get into a school if you didn't live in the state where it was. So yeah, my goal since I was a little girl was always to be a veterinarian and I achieved that. Yay! <laughs> Along the way, I became a registered nurse because I had to work my way through school. But I love it. I love the combination now because I have an overview of all of life and I see the relationships between humans and nature. And we like to separate ourselves. But recently, I had an experience where I just realized how that is such a false concept that there is any separation. Yeah, that background that you kind of shared and leading up into that career path, it seemed like very interwoven with the book that we're going to be talking about today, Restoring Eden. It was mentioned a lot and it seemed like it 
like was a big part of the curiosity that led to the research. So because not all the listeners have probably read it, would you mind providing like a brief summary to the listener of kind of like what it is about? I know that is a very in-depth story and I do recommend that everyone check it out, but yeah. Yeah, sure. So in 2017, I was checking on some of the trees I'd planted along a river in our community. So we live in an upland and there's a floodplain along the river and it floods once or twice a year. It's just a normal thing it does. And I was checking on the trees because we'd had a recent flood and it can flatten them to the ground. They were just saplings. So I wanted to make sure they were good and up in the air. So when I went down there that day to work, on my way back, I stopped by a local wetland and I was so shocked, Megan, I found it dead and scummy. There was none of the usual vibrant life. You know, there's usually tadpoles to watch playing and dragonflies. Nope, none of that. It was totally still. The gray scum was totally undisturbed. And I'd never seen anything like that. I ran back, got my husband. I said, you have to look at this. I'm not sure. Like, I didn't trust my eyes. And so he checked it out. He saw the same thing I did. We walked the length of the wetland. I collected water samples that day, but I thought it was a wetland problem. And I was actively investigating what hurt the wetland. But within weeks, all the moths left our porch lights. We'd had so many, you know, beneficial insects here, just native bees and butterflies and moths. And they started just drifting away, declining. I did see some dead bodies, but mostly I just experienced a fading away. And then the insect eating animals left. The bats left the skies, the birds. We used to have a lot of Eastern Phoebe nests raising their young. They left their nests with the babies in them. And I found that really shocking. I'd never seen anything like that before. And then in the summer, our gardens stopped producing okra, cucumbers were just these little misshapen twists on the vine. And this was all very new to me. We'd always had a very bountiful orchard and garden. We fed our family a quarter acre of fenced, deer fenced, we have a lot of deer here, a quarter acre fed our family about 60 to 70% of the fruits and vegetables we ate. And it was decimated by this experience. So with a lot of investigation, reaching out for help, talking to my neighbors, talking to the farmer upstream of us, I learned that agricultural runoff had contaminated the wetland. And I'm not 100% sure why the effects were so widespread. I do know that the pesticides they use can travel through air, but why just this year? Because he'd been farming for a few years by that point. So my best understanding is because these pesticides are water soluble, it contaminated the water so much that that's where the animals go to drink during dry periods. So the insects, they're safe there in the wetland. They don't have fish jumping out to eat them. So they'll alight to drink. They'll sit on the grass and reed spears to drink. And the birds will drink there as well. We found a dead bird on our property. So once I learned what the chemicals were, 
I got my water samples tested and I'd gone down the rabbit hole. I mean, I work as an environmental scientist during the day. So I was all over the literature, all over the public, magazine, press, anything about insects or birds being harmed. I was into it, trying to understand. Well, what I learned was the chemicals that contaminated our wetland and our farm turn out to be the most commonly used group of pesticides in the world now. There's an herbicide, which is a kind of pesticide that kills plants, Roundup, and there were some other herbicides that might have been added to that. There was also an insecticide group. We had a, one member of the group. They're called neonicotinoids or neonics. I don't know if you've heard of them. They're used in lawn products, they're used to treat nursery plants, but their most common use is to coat agricultural seeds. So corn, over 90% of corn grown in the United States, the seeds are coated with these insecticides plus fungicides, soy, cotton. So when I looked at this, I thought, well, it was the flood, it was an accident. Then I started exploring my neighbor's land. He had corn growing in uplands that drained through gravity into a little stream he had on his land. He gave me permission to go and take samples, walk on the stream. And I didn't see a gray scum in the moving water, but there was nothing living in it. I turned over rocks to look for aquatic invertebrates, I was looking for the crayfish that he used to catch as a kid in the stream. There was nothing. And I found reports after that that talk about these insecticides when they coat the crop seed. They're so water soluble. Over 90% of the total pesticide load washes away from the crop field into the soil, down into the groundwater, outward into surface water. It still didn't make sense to me how a cornfield could have such a big impact. And we still haven't recovered, Megan. Six years later, we still haven't gotten our animals back. We're recovering, but it's a shadow of what it used to be. We had a couple of Phoebes nesting this year compared to a dozen, you know. So I learned that the new insecticides are so potent that one corn seed is coated with enough insecticide to kill over 80,000 honeybees. And an acre of corn starts with about 30,000 seeds. So it finally all clicked into place. And as I was investigating, I realized that scientists have been writing about this for almost two decades, about how very potent these insecticides are, how they're associated with our insect apocalypse, how they are associated with our rapid loss of birds. We've lost 30% of our birds in the last 50 years. The birds are harmed by eating the seeds themselves, which can be on top of the soil during planting. They're harmed by eating contaminated insects, and they're harmed by loss of food. And I think that's what happened with us. There was just such a sudden crash in their food supply. I think that's why the parents left their young because they had nothing to feed them. You know, a 
making all this up because I don't really know exactly the cause and effect. I just temporally, you know, the insects left, then the birds left and the babies were left alone. So, you know, just trying to make sense of all the pieces. It's like a big jigsaw puzzle. And I'll never know for sure all how the pieces exactly fit together. But my story is consistent with what I found in the literature. But what I didn't see is anybody just talking about their personal experience. There was a huge body of work of scientists, these detailed reports of the neonics in bird bodies, in insect bodies, neonics in water. But scientists talk to each other in those journals. So here I am with a full-time job, a farm. I was like, I have to write a book. <laughs> so, because it was so important. We lost our bees. We lost, we can't feed ourselves at our home place anymore. I'm hoping that's going to recover, but the effects were so dramatic. And I do hear about people missing abundant butterflies and birds and bees. We know our, our native bees are in steep decline. Our bumblebees, there was an endangered bumblebee listed recently. So, you know, we're not going in the right direction with these chemicals. I'll tell you that. Yeah. And I really enjoyed like the narrative story that was in your book because it was like it was very engaging and it was kind of like the reader was kind of like helping to solve this mystery along with you like it was like a good mix of like science and mystery it was very appealing to me it like appealed to all of my interests so it was perfect oh, thank you and I don't know like how much I guess you want to give away with the book and the story it seems like you covered most of it and with the pesticides specifically, I do want to talk a little bit more in depth about those and kind of like why they are used so prevalently in our agriculture today, because if it is causing all these problems and scientists have been, I mean, scientists are generally ignored by the mass populace, but <laughs> if they have been aware of all of these issues and the biodiversity loss and all of these impacts, why are we still using them? And why are they still so prevalent? Well, this is my understanding. And, you know, I'm not in the boardrooms. I'm not an agriculturalist with knowledge from decision makers. My understanding, my take on this, these are the most widely used insecticide and herbicide in the world, Roundup and this group Neonics. They are incredibly profitable these are large multinational corporations that have stakeholders that are beholden to meet quarterly profit reports. So if I'm a new farmer and I want to grow corn, the infrastructure I used to have, the publicly funded agriculture advisors is gone. The state support for publicly funded agricultural help publicly funded land-grant universities has been slashed since the 1990s. And the multinational corporations came in to support those, not that extension, but the land-grant universities. So they actively support to support graduate students, to support department funding. 
So people are trained in this. And if I'm a new farmer and I go to look for help, there's no big presence of publicly funded assistance. The big presence is now the commercial seed distributors. And they're like, come on in. Here's a package. This I'll make it so easy. And that step by step, this is how you grow corn, all using their products, of course. Now, I will say that the transition over the last 20 years from a more actively engaged agriculture where people were getting off and scouting for pests, say I'm growing a corn crop. Back in the early 90s, I would use insecticide on that crop about 30% of the time when I saw a pest problem. Now we have a paradigm where pesticides and insecticides, fungicides are applied over 90% of the time a corn crop is grown when it's planted. So it allows one person on a tractor to farm so many more acres themselves without getting off that tractor to look. The side effects of that have been loss of biodiversity, the increase in resistant organisms. We have resistant weeds, we have resistant insects because these are chemicals that are used every time, all the time. And you know, many of us may be aware of antibiotics. You can't overuse antibiotics because you get bacterial resistance. It's the same principle. That's a basic principle of biology. So we have all these side effects, but they're convenient and they're very profitable. What we're not seeing is a big increase in yield associated with the use of these chemicals. So the farmer's paying a lot of money for patented seed and these pesticide inputs, but they aren't necessarily getting the reward at the other end. So it's really a mixed bag. It's complicated. And maybe that's why people don't talk about it a lot. It's like, no, no, I just want to buy my food. Thank you. But, you know, it hit me, as we say in the South, upside the head. Like I didn't have a choice. I had to look at this and it shook my world. And I'm not the kind of person to go on a podcast and start speaking out about agriculture. That's not my field, but it is my experience. And it really, really hurt us. Yeah, I have noticed that with a lot. There's so much going on in the world and there's like the news cycle is so intense for us that I think sometimes it's hard to like be aware of some issues that are as prevalent as this until it really like is a part of your life and it has such a big impact on your life. So it makes sense that speaking from your experience, of course, this rocked your world and now you're like, everyone, you need to know about this because it was devastating. And you spoke a lot on like the impacts on the landscape. So like the aquatic animals, the insects, the other animals like turtles and birds and all those things. But what about the impact on you guys living in that area? Did it have anything to do with your health or other people in the area? Is there any trends that you've noticed? I know that that might not necessarily be your field of expertise again, but <laughs> speaking from your experience. So it's been six years. 
when it happened, I made the mistake of touching the water and it burned my arm and hand. And I got dizzy for a while after touching it. That wore off, but there were no adverse effects. I went to my doctor and he checked my you know, blood count and chemistry and that was all good. So it's unclear to me if any of us had any immediate effects or if we will, because you know, one of the principles of understanding if a chemical is dangerous to people is how they're exposed. So it was really bad that I put my hand in the water. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> no, don't do that at home. But for people living around it, we know the dust does travel. There are studies that show the insecticides in people's hair who live in farming communities. And there's more in their hair of people who live in farming communities that use more of these chemicals. We know that from blood surveys done by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, that about 50% of us have biological evidence of exposure. We have neonics in our urine because there are residues in our food. This is how our food is grown now. So it's commonly found. I don't think we know in general about health effects. These insecticides, and I'll speak about the neonics first, were developed to be because they thought they were less toxic to mammals. But there's recent evidence that mammals can be harmed especially reproductive harm from neonics. So I think we're in a transition period of trying to learn more. Roundup's another story. It was introduced in the 70s, but it wasn't really evaluated for health effects until 2015. The International Agency for Research on Cancer said that the active ingredient in Roundup was a probable carcinogen. And after that, there was more funding available, more scientific papers written, and more investigating that. Cancer as an endpoint is still extremely controversial. You may have heard about all the lawsuits. There's certainly animal evidence for carcinogenic outcomes, but then there are studies that show no evidence and teasing that out is difficult because one of the things I found when I was evaluating the literature was that these companies were also hiring ghostwriters. So the literature has a mixture of honest science and what I consider to be propaganda. So if you're just looking at the research reports without those glasses on, it's hard to tell, okay, what is a true report? So it's a mess out there, Megan. It really is. Yeah, there's no real, like, clear answer. I mean, like, there's obviously evidence to show, like, yeah, these can be dangerous, but it's very, like, muddled and confusing. And I think, like, the average consumer, it's hard to understand, like, what is true and what is not. And, like, what is actually going to harm you and what is not. And I did have one question because you talked a lot about the pesticides like getting in hair or bringing them in or something like that. But what about in water sources? Because for you, it contaminated the wetland. And so if you have a well or you're drinking from that water source, are you also consuming it in that way? I think it's possible. The active ingredient Roundup is a regulated contaminant. The neonics are not, to the best of my knowledge. 
And there are lots of papers showing these chemicals in drinking water and in shallow groundwater. I believe there have been some reports about chemicals in deeper wells. So it's theoretically possible. What we do know about the neonics is once they get in the groundwater, they can persist for very long periods of time. So it isn't just a transient thing. And the active ingredient in Roundup will degrade, but it also degrades to a toxic contaminant. So it can change in the water over time. I don't believe there have been a lot of in-depth, comprehensive surveys of people's well water for these chemicals, even in agricultural areas, but I knew there have been some studies. When we talk about being confused and not knowing what to do, I'm a mother, and I know that when I was pregnant, when my baby was a newborn through age, well, preschool really, the child is developing their brain, their nervous system. And that's when the insecticides are most harmful. So if anyone is even mildly uneasy about exposure, the critical time to eat low pesticide food is pregnancy, and feeding the child through preschool because you want that child's nervous system to have the very best chance to form correctly because we do know that insecticides have been associated with decreased IQ, cognitive deficits, attention deficit disorder, and we have rising autism rates. So that to me as a mother, that's the critical time that if you're ever going to shell out for organic food, absolutely, that's the time to do it. You can also choose like lower pesticide foods. The Environmental Working Group has a dirty dozen list where they list the 12. So we do market basket and now we, FDA, our country, <laughs> our country does market basket analyses, FDA takes representative food samples from around the country and looks for pesticide residues. And some foods consistently have more residues than other. And that's why the Environmental Working Group's Dirty Dozen, if you're feeding your kids, say they're, you know, not a preschooler anymore, but you still don't want them having these, you might want to avoid those or buy the organic options for some of those higher residue foods. Yeah. What are some of the Dirty Dozen, just so people are maybe more aware? <laughs> sure. Cherries, strawberries, apples, pears. A lot of fruits, it sounds like. Green beans, red peppers. Yeah, yeah. This podcast is sponsored by Diorite Gear. Diorite Gear sells sustainable trekking poles, handmade in their Portland, Oregon workshop. By taking ownership of their production, Diorite Gear is able to minimize their trace in manufacturing and in the environment, while their poles' recyclable and easily repairable components allow you to do the same. As someone that hikes daily and often in the Cascade Mountains or its foothills, trekking poles have become a staple in my gear lineup. The Diorite poles not only have comfortable cork handles, but I also love the adjustability, durability, and overall performance no matter the time of year I happen to be hiking. Use the code MINIMALIST for 15% off your first order. 
And we spoke about this when we first connected about the like organic issue, I guess, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Where like it is fine and easy to give the advice of like, yeah, you could eat organic or you can avoid these foods, etc. But if you're trying to eat a balanced diet to the best of your ability and feed your family, it's not always affordable or even accessible for people that live in a food desert or something like that. And so how can we like integrate that into our lifestyle if it's not necessarily an option? Yeah. Well, I have the perspective of having a yard so I can grow some food for anyone who has a yard or even pots. You can grow some of your own food and you know what's on that food, what's in that food. So that's a minor contribution maybe to our diets The other thing is there are support systems in some communities, farmers markets, and I'm speaking from my experience. So here in central North Carolina, our farmers markets accept the electronic benefit transfer cards at the market, and you can choose organic produce there. In my area, supermarkets carry it, and frequently it's not always a lot more expensive, but sometimes it is. So the only other option I know for low pesticide foods is to know your local farmers. So if you have local farmers who are growing fruits and vegetables and they're not certified organic, which is a whole process, you have to register with the USDA and it costs money to join and it costs paperwork to stay certified. You can ask the farmer, say, hey, look, I'm raising kids or I'm concerned about my pesticide exposure. I have health issues. I want to eat clean. How do you grow your food? And many farmers will try to minimize pesticide use because they're growing in a healthy environment. They're rotating their crops. They have lots of beneficial insects left that help them. And they don't have to use pesticides or they may choose not to. And so if you have the option to interact with the people who are growing your food, again, I realize that's not available everywhere. So I believe the work is to transition our commercial food supply to low pesticide methods. And this is being done in many areas. Farmers are saying no to the high cost of inputs. Farmer debt is at record highs now. And part of that is due to input costs. If a farmer buys the uncoated, say, soybean seed, for example, and doesn't use the Roundup to clear the field, if they have other ways of using insecticides on a very limited basis. They scout, they see a problem, it's not being taken care of by the predator insects, then they bring in the insecticides. That's called integrated pest management. And there are recent studies that have been published about people who grow corn and watermelon rotations or different melons. And they wanted to know, can we preserve our bees And can we preserve crop yields? And they found that absolutely they can. In some cases, they got much better yields while preserving their bees, while using a selective 
pesticide application approach. So I find that very, very heartening. Others are choosing to grow food in a soil-based approach. We know that a healthy soil makes healthy plants. The plant's immune systems are better and they have those beneficial insects to deliver nutrients to the roots and to control pests in the leaves and fruit. And regenerative agriculture, agroecology, all of these trends that are really increasing are using methods like this, where we're growing food in partnership with the natural world, rather than just trying to suppress everything with chemicals and have a clean slate upon which to grow. That doesn't work when you're partnering with a living system like an agricultural soil. It doesn't work for long, I should say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it is good to see like a little more of that transition, I guess, to a more integrated agriculture, more in tune with the natural systems. But do you think that it is possible to like move from what we see our modern agriculture now to being able to feed everyone in the world with limited pesticides or no pesticides, because a lot of it is controlled, like you mentioned before, by these large corporations. Yeah, I think it's possible. It's what people choose to buy. You know, if you're able to buy, to make choices that line up with preserving our natural world and our food future, so this is something that really, really scared me, Megan. When our floodplain was contaminated, the insecticides killed the soil animals. So the worms, the insects, all the animals that made that soil fertile. So when I dug in the soil there, there were no beetles, there were no ants, and the soil was thick and flabby, like a pudding. It was not a healthy agricultural soil. So I think that if we want to have our grandchildren and great-grandchildren to have healthy, fertile soil, we have to transition away from a model where we're destroying the soil when we grow very chemical-intensive cropping systems. So I think, you know, I hear a lot that, oh, well, you can't control pesticides because we won't be able to feed the world. I mean, that's the common rebuttal I get, but we've been growing food without intensive pesticides for millennia. There are certainly more people now, but given that we're destroying our soil resource and our pollinator resource by using these chemical intensive methods, I think that it shortens the timeline for having a viable agricultural future. I think we have to not only look at current output, but we have to look at the trend. Ethan Thayer recently wrote a paper. He evaluated soil loss in the Corn Belt in central United States. And he found that we have gone through that really rich, deep prairie soil one of the most fertile agricultural soils in the world. We have used it up down to subsoil. 30% of that area in the Corn Belt now, he estimates are now, crops are now being planted into subsoil. The topsoil is all gone. And if you think about 
indigenous communities that have grown food in the same place for thousands of years, we come in using foreign techniques like plowing and not understanding how to use the soil. We've used up an incredibly rich resource in less than 200 years. So we're kind of on this fast track of consumption of not only growing a lot of food and exporting it, we're exporting our soil, we're exporting our groundwater, but we're also using up the soil and shortening the food future as I think of it. So I think we don't have a choice. We have to grow food more sustainably. Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. A lot of environmental issues, I think, can be a little bit scary to like think about, especially when you think of like future projections. If we continue in the same manner, like it could be very devastating. And you mentioned like a few different farming methods that have been proven to be very effective and farmers seem to not only be restoring the soil, but also getting higher yields in some circumstances. So do you have any other thoughts on other types of farming or ways that we can actually change how we grow food? Well, I think it's going to be driven by consumer demand and consumer choice because how we spend our money is going to make a difference. So people who are able to make that choice, if anyone cares about the issue, I encourage you to vote with your pocketbook. But I think that more opportunities as this snowballs. I mean, we are in a transition period, Megan. We're seeing more and more young farmers come in and choose organic or regenerative methods or soil-based methods for their own bottom line, for the health of their farms. So we're in a transition period. As this snowballs, I think we're going to see more and more development of production of plants that are bred to work in these systems. That's a real thing we're missing right now is corn varieties that are meant to be grown without intensive crowding or without, maybe we'll get two ears of corn per plant rather than one with giving them more space or I don't know how it will turn out, but I really feel like we need support of research and development for organic methods. And right now, what I'm seeing when I look out there at land-grant universities is most of the support is for crops and seeds that are aligned with a chemically heavy agriculture production. So, you know, it's our voices. It's one of the reasons I wrote the book. I was like, oh, I have to say something. <laughs> Because if we say nothing, there's no pressure for anything to change. Yeah, I do think that talking about things like this and like general communication and like building community around it is really valuable. So I'm really glad that you decided to put your story out there. I found it very impactful. Do you have any other, I guess, like final thoughts or like takeaways that you want to share about your book or this experience? Yeah, this was a real psychological transition for me too. Before 2017, I picked my tomatoes, I picked my pears, and I would share them with community members. And I would say, hey, here I've grown some pears, here are my tomatoes. And now it is so clear to me 
that we're not growing the food. When we grow food, it's in collaboration with the natural world. We have a whole community of soil organisms, a whole community of insect pollinators. It's not just bees, it's flies and beetles and wasps. I saw moths pollinating my peach tree. So we are embedded in the natural world, in the community of life. And we don't grow food in isolation by putting a box around our food production and saying, nope, we're gonna do this here by ourselves, thank you. It doesn't work that way. And it doesn't work that way even in my small scale. It doesn't work that way for long and a large scale. So I guess that's my takeaway is we're in community with the natural world. And if listeners wanna learn more about your story and get a copy of your book, how can they do that? So Restoring Eden is available as a paperback wherever books are sold. And there are also Kindle and audiobook options now. Thank you. Awesome. And I'll be sure to share the links to all of that in the show notes. So if people listening, once you're not driving, then you can go down there and click the link very easily. But with that, thank you so much, Elizabeth, for taking the time to share that information and sit down and chat today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you hear, let me know. Leave a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on Instagram at outdoor.minimalist.book, on YouTube, or subscribe to our weekly newsletter at theoutdoorminimalist.com. For even more updates, other educational resources, and to help build an outdoor community with the shared goal to create a better outdoor space as we recreate.